Today we look at early Christian texts from the Nag Hammadi Library that New Scholarship calls Resistance Literature. Salim Lilly is the director of the Tanho Center. The Tanho Center combines art, spiritual practice, theology, and research with countless new writings from the first and second centuries. She's the author of The Rape of Eve, The Transformation of Roman Ideology in Three Early Christian Retellings of Genesis. They are really the only texts in the ancient world where the woman is not blamed for the sexual violence perpetrated against her. They're able to kind of be in this together and move to a new state of being that doesn't ignore or erase the violence that's happened, but allows them to move forward in a different way within it and to resist it. It's time now for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. For the Pacifica Radio Network and the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schock. The Nag Hammadi Library, discovered in 1945, has provided a number of alternative Christian texts. They were not included in the Bible. They've been dismissed by many Orthodox Christians as Gnostic or even heresy. Yet, new scholarship is discovering the complexity of these texts and the value they have for many today. Dr. Celine Lilly discusses three of these texts in her book, The Rape of Eve, The Transformation of Roman Ideology in Three Early Christian Retellings of Genesis. In each of these three texts, on the origin of the world, the reality of the rulers, and the secret revelation of John, Eve is portrayed as having been humiliated by the cosmic powers, but experiences restoration. She sees these Nag Hammadi stories as affirmation of women's value and wisdom and as myths of resistance to Roman imperial power and to Rome's culture of rape and domination. The rape of the Sabine women is the origin of a custom that we still hold today, which is that of carrying women, um, newly, newly married brides over the threshold of their new homes. And this actually, this ritual commemorates the rape of the Sabine women who would not go into the homes of the Romans of their own accord. Um, and I think this is probably one of the reasons why during the scene in Secret Revelation of John, where um, the chief ruler rapes Eve, that they say this is the beginning of marital, marital intercourse because it, it reflects this idea of the Sabine women's not being taken, um, not of their own accord. Celine Lilly is also the director of the Tanho Center in Longmont, Colorado. The Tanho Center combines art, spiritual practice, theology, and research with these kinds of texts and others like the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Philip, Thunder, Perfect Mind, and countless new writings from the first and second centuries. Led by a combination of young innovators, passionate thinkers, and seasoned scholars, Tanho is dedicated to making the world outside and the depth of the inner life alive and open-hearted. She's with me via Skype from Longmont, Colorado. Welcome, Dr. Lilly. To Progressive Spirit. Thanks so much for having me, John. I'm very glad you're here. Very interested to talk about this book and uh, and what you've discovered about these interesting texts. Uh, but tell me first a little bit about the Tanho Center. So we are a new educational organization that was founded just about 10 months ago, and I'm working with Hal Tausig and several other folks from Union and around the country who have a special interest in extra-canonical early Christian literature. And what we're doing is kind of existing at the intersection between scholarship, churches, 
artists and the public to try and um, bring these texts to folks in um, new ways for the renewal of spirituality, um, for folks to be using them in their churches, for people to have access to scholarship, and to have more opportunities to to really explore them and um, deepen our understanding of these texts. Um, the word tanho actually is from the Coptic to make alive. And so it's this kind of idea of re-enlivening um, spiritual practices, um, the way we think about what's possible in Christianity. Um, and it's, I, I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to narrow it specifically to Christianity. Um, but because uh, these are for the most part texts from the early Jesus movement, that's a, that's a big piece of kind of what we're hoping to do. And you were on the team uh, that put together a new New Testament. Uh, Hal Tosig was on this program, oh, a couple of years ago, I believe, when it first came out, uh, to talk about that book. That was the New Testament, as we have, the Christian New Testament, plus some extra texts that uh, a committee was gathered together to kind of say, hey, what, what was important? And how did you—and you were on that. Am I, am I right on that committee and, and part of the translation team? So how did you come to decide uh, what texts to include? Um, over many long hours of debate, we decided which texts to include. It's so funny kind of to make these decisions, but one of the things as Hal was kind of conceptualizing this was thinking about the early church councils that kind of did the same thing in certain ways. So we were asking questions about what did we think would be spiritually enlivening for people today? Um, in terms of some of these extra materials. And we initially, I think, started with about 40 texts, if I remember correctly. And the criteria was that they needed to be written in the same time period as the existing New Testament texts. So that was kind of how we began to narrow things down. And then we had two councils, one which was in New Jersey, um, to, to narrow that larger group of texts down, and then a group of 20 to 25 of us who met in New Orleans to really decide what would be included in a new New Testament. And debates kind of ran the gamut about um, what we thought would be helpful for people. One, uh, one of the big pushes with folks was thinking about texts that were inclusive, inclusive of women and women's stories. Um, Texts that provided new ways to look at new ways to look at um, the life of Jesus, the life of um, early followers, and um, and really thinking about um, what would add to and expand the ways in which we thought about these um, early Jesus or Christ groups to help us think about ways to expand today. And these texts that were written uh, in the same period uh, as the what we end up calling them the canonical texts. Uh, yes. How many are there? And and they're and they're not all of them are were necessarily found at Nag Hammadi or 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 recently discovered. Many were, but some have been there for for some time, right? Correct. Um, there was a group of four texts that was found in the late eighteen hundreds. Um, that included the secret revelation of John and the gospel of Mary. Um, there have been other um, fragments that were found that until we had Nag Hammadi, we didn't really know what they were. There are so many other texts. Really what's in the New Testament is really a small cross section of what, what we've had for a long time. There are some texts like the Acts of Paul and Thecla that have been around for um, centuries and that we've known about there have always been other texts that just really hadn't come to the public's attention in particular ways until we really had Nag Hammadi. I think one of the ones that is now entered into public consciousness uh, is the Gospel of Thomas. Um, yes. Uh, no, 114 or so uh, simply sayings of Jesus, some in the same as in the canonical Gospels and some quite different. Um, but there are some other fascinating texts that you talk about, of course, in your dissertation that becomes as, has come out into a book, The Rape of Eve, um, 
three of them are from the Nag Hammadi. Am I right? The Secret Revelation of John, the Origin of the World, and the Reality of the Rulers? Correct. Okay. Tell, talk a little bit about these texts and, and the setting, I guess. They, that, that's what I'm, I'm a bit curious about that and how they are responding to Roman mythology. So traditionally, these texts have kind of created the backbone of what we've called the Gnostic myth. I'm always a little wary of going into this uh, because my own point of view on how these texts should be read, as we'll continue to talk about, is really different than a lot of the traditional scholarship that exists on them. But they're, they're basically three retellings of Genesis. And in these stories, um, you get this kind of perfect divine realm that exists. And then um, there's a rupture. And, and not all of the texts are explicit about this, but in the secret revelation of John, for example. So this perfect world um, with this God kind of proliferates and these beings proliferate from this God and they kind of create in partnership and, um, and then ask permission to kind of create the next level of beings and wisdom or Sophia has this thought on her own in the secret revelation of John without her partner. And this is kind of how the material realm comes into being. So the world that we know now, the world that we live in every day that we can touch and see and taste and smell and all of those things with our senses. And this created a rupture and she birthed the son who is called um Yaldaboath in many of the in many of the texts. He's also known as um Sackless or Samael. And um he becomes the ruler of this material world. And he thinks he's God and he says, um, I am God and no one exists beside me. And this is a phrase that we know from the Hebrew Bible. And so many interpreters have conflated this God of the world with the creator God of Genesis. And based really on Karen King's work on the secret revelation of John and the way that this God, Samael or um, Yaldabaoth, connects with the ways in which the Roman emperors fashion themselves. It seems that this God really isn't about the God of the Hebrew Bible, but is really about these Roman emperors who claim to be gods, who rule the world with violence and oppression, and think that they're the only God above all other gods. This really isn't supposed to be the God of the Hebrew Bible, but it's really supposed to be these human beings who think they're gods in order to gain power and exploit those underneath for their own wealth and gain. So the, the Yaldabaoth, he's similar in a sense to the Yahweh of Genesis 1, but as you're saying, he's, he's not necessarily that, that the people who are rewriting the story of Genesis are writing it with the Roman Empire in mind, not necessarily the Hebrew Scripture in mm. mind. That's what I, you know, I really think that these texts operate in a way as Jewish midrash, where mm. they, you know, they take a text and, um, and, and counter text and really make meaning from looking at these things together. And one of the things that we find as we're looking at Genesis, and particularly, we think that that most of the texts from Nag Hammadi, so in including the three that, I, that I've been working on, Secret Revelation of John, On the Origin of the World, and Reality of the Rulers, were originally written in Greek. In the first several chapters of Genesis, we have these two creation narratives. And one uses, if we, if we look at our English translations, we get, the, in, the, in the first creation narrative, we get the word God that's used. And in the second one, we get Yahweh. 
um, or Lord is how it's the Lord in all caps, which is how we normally see this in our English translations. And these correlate to these two names of God that are being used in the Hebrew Bible, Elohim and Yahweh. What ends up happening in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, they get translated um, as Elohim gets translated as Theos, which is the Greek word for God, and Yahweh gets translated as Kurios, which is the Greek word for Lord or Master. But it's also this word that gets used for the Roman emperors. And what's very interesting is that when we look at the ways in which um, these three texts from Nag Hammadi elaborate the Genesis narrative, every time the Genesis narrative that we know, when it switches back and forth between these two names of God, it switches back and forth between these ideas of the divine perfect realm, the real true God, and this lordly kind of master of the world, um, it, this word for kurios. And so so the, the Nag Hammadi text, these three elaborations of Genesis correspond really closely to these two different ideas that we get that comes out in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And so I really think that they're, they're being playful and they're playing with the way that this translation works for them to say something about the Roman emperors who are also kurios, or this, this word that we get for Lord in English. Can you take uh, just a, a minute or so and um, give the plot of the secret revelation of John? Sure. So, um, so at, let me tell, let me talk about that. Each of the texts kind of elaborates the story in different ways, but let me give you kind of an overview of the, of the main pieces that I work on. Okay. So, Kind of in, in the beginning, we get this divine realm that really exists in perfection. And it's a realm where there is mutuality and concord and harmony. And then this rupture that I talked about occurs. And from this rupture, as I said, the world that we know, this material world is born. And in charge of this world, um, there was this god, Yeldeboeth or Samael, um, and he was the chief, called the chief ruler in these texts, and he thinks he's God. He speaks to all of the all of his minions or the people um, in his government, as on the origin of the world puts it, and he says, "I am God, and no other exists besides me." And his words then reverberate throughout the cosmos. But a voice interrupts him from the divine realm and says, you're wrong, Samael. And this is one of the chief ruler's names. And it's also the name in several early Hebrew texts for the angel of Rome. And because of this voice from the divine realm, um, the chief ruler and his minions are both very shaken and jealous of this power that they that is not under their control and so they feel that this this power has both usurped and demoted them in particular ways so they decide that they need to entrap this power and to control it um, they decide to create a human being to seduce it so they create adam and they create they create this being like we get in Genesis from from the earth, and they huff and they puff, but they can't make Adam come alive. So Adam kind of remains there, still lying on the ground. The divine realm ends up seeing this helpless Adam, and wisdom, um, who we talked about earlier, who creates this rupture, is actually the one who sends her daughter life or Zoe to help Adam so that they together, so that Adam and these female beings from the divine realm can overcome the rulers of the world. 
First, these divine beings send their breath to Adam. And with their breath, he's given a soul that he still can't stand. And so life, who's also called Eve, sees him on the ground and says, Adam, live, arise from the ground. And I love this part. It says Eve's word became a work. So her her word actually becomes a tangible thing. And Adam rises and opens his eyes. And when he sees Eve, he uses this line that we get from the Hebrew Bible and says, you will be called mother of the living for you have given me life. So these rulers of the of the world then see Eve talking to Adam and they become jealous of her power. Um, so they make a plan and they decide that they're actually, in order to entrap their power, they're going to rape her so that she can't return to the divine realm. And they say that then that also the children that she bears will be subject to them. But they say, let's not tell Adam about our plan for he isn't like us. And so they decide to stupefy him, to put him in a trance and teach him in this trance that Eve came from his rib. Um, And this is in order so that the woman might be subject to him and he may be lord over her. Um, Eve, though, because she's this being from the divine realm, knows their plot and she laughs at the rulers and she actually puts them in a trance and she enters into and becomes the tree of knowledge and she leaves kind of the shadow of herself behind. These rulers think that the shadow is actually the true Eve and this is the part where they um, where they end up raping her. And not only do they rape her body, but they it says that they the text says that they defiled the seal of her voice, which has declared that they were not gods. Um, so this the the voice that they had heard earlier, they're trying to suppress this voice. And the text very specifically says that they that they acted cruelly and that they were wicked. Um, The secret revelation of John actually says at this point that this rape is what begins um, the notion of marital intercourse, which is very, very interesting. Um, And um, we can talk a little bit more about that later. Um, But the, The text goes on and then says, but the rulers made a mistake. They didn't understand that they had actually defiled their own body, their own material body. Um, So after this, after the rape, the rulers place Adam and Eve um, in the garden. Um, So we're back kind of at the Genesis story. And um, the rulers tell them that they could eat of any tree. um, But if they ate from the tree of knowledge, that they would die. Um, So we're back to kind of this familiar story here. And then the text says the wisest of all creatures, the serpent. um, And in this case, it's actually the serpent is a creature of the divine realm, comes to Eve and says, you know, did the rulers tell you not to eat from the tree of knowledge? And Eve replies, as she does in the Hebrew Bible, they not only said, don't eat from it, but don't touch it or you will die. And the serpent says, don't be afraid. Um, You actually won't die when you eat this, but your minds will become sober and open and you will know the difference that exists between evil humans and good. And again, this was said to you in jealousy so that you wouldn't eat from the tree. Eve believes these words from the serpent and has confidence in them. And so she takes fruit from the tree of Um, knowledge into which she actually, the divine Eve went and became. So this is the the tree that, that Eve actually split out into in the face of this violence. She takes fruit from the tree and eats it and then gives this fruit to Adam as well. And their minds open and they, when they eat, the light of knowledge enlightens them. And 
they become sober, as the serpent says, and they recognize each other. They know one another and they love one another. And they actually know at this point as well that the rulers are like beasts and Adam and Eve loathe them. And it's through this love and partnership um, that Eve births children who end up becoming the saviors of humanity in these texts, delivering the people um, from the subjugation of the rulers of the world. So um, that's kind of the basic outline. Not something most folks have learned in Sunday school. No, um, <laughs> and not really... Um, and not really a Sunday school story in particular ways. Um, I didn't yeah. say this before, but I do always like to say this. You know, this is a really hard story for people to hear. Um, I hate I hate kind of giving statistics on this uh, because it it dehumanizes things in certain ways, and our statistics are probably low. But we know that one in five. Um, women in their lifetimes are sexually assaulted. And this doesn't include men. And this doesn't include the fact that these are probably underreported numbers. So, um, so it's a, it's a hard story to hear in particular ways too, because it's so relevant um, to so many people's lives still um, right now. Um, But definitely not the Sunday school, definitely not the Sunday school version of Adam and Eve um, that we know. Celine Lilly is the director of the Tonho Center and the author of The Rape of Eve, The Transformation of Roman Ideology in Three Early Christian Retellings of Genesis. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Shuck. More after the break. Stay with us. I'm speaking with Celine Lilly. Dr. Lilly is the director of the Tonho Center, and she's also the author of The Rape of Eve, uh, The Transformation of Roman Ideology in Three Early Christian Retellings of Genesis. And what you just gave us was a summary um, that really is in all three works. Am I right? That's kind of a, a the secret revelation of John, the origin of the world, and the reality of the rulers. They have some differences, but that's the basic plot for all three? That's the basic plot for all three. And central to this is the sexual violence against women. And you've also, in your um, book, talk about how that was also the central part of Roman uh, mythology of origins. Can you, can, yes. you, can you talk a little bit about that and how that relates to Rome's uh, domination over other nations, too? So the interesting thing when I started reading this story, I had been reading the work of Davina Lopez, who does a lot with Paul and these myths of sexual violence um, that are integral to Rome's founding. Um, many people don't know or realize that that several of the major pivotal moments in the founding of Rome are rape narratives, um, including, you know, from the beginning of um, the birth of the founders, where Rhea Silvia, um, is raped by the god Mars and births twins, Romulus and Remus, um, who become the founders of Rome, kind of through these pivotal moments in Rome's founding. One of the major incidents that occurs after this is um, the rape of the Sabine women. And um, I think it's worth saying a little bit about this to kind of give us an I- idea of how how these stories end up connecting um, with the broader Roman ideology of conquest and then with this story of Eve. So um, the Romans, um, Romulus ends up killing his brother Remus and being the sole leader of Rome. And he's gathered these men together who are kind of considered um, rabble and criminals um, to find his city. And they realize that they are a city of only men. 
and that in a generation or two, they're going to die out because they don't have any women to birth their children. So they decide to go to their neighbors and um, see if they can um, get some women, um, not only to be their wives, but because through intermarriage, they can begin to form alliances and their neighbors are not too excited about the Romans and say, there's no way we're not giving our daughters to you. And Romulus gets very, very upset. And so he creates a plan and decides that he's going to create a festival and under the guise of hospitality to invite all the neighbors there to celebrate with him. And they provide food and games and fun times for all of their neighbors. And then Romulus will give this signal during the games and um, the Roman men will snatch the women who are there and make them their wives. So the people come, they have a wonderful time. They are in um, the circus or the arena for these games. And Romulus gives the signal and they snatch um, their neighbor's women and eventually, um, and, and rape them and make them their wives. And eventually the neighboring communities make war with Rome to try and get their daughters back. And at every turn, the Romans conquer these neighboring peoples. And when they're conquered, the Romans colonize, Roman citizens actually go into their lands and they take the people from these neighboring communities as slaves and transfer them to Rome. During the last and final battle with the Sabines, from whom most of um, the women were stolen, the women actually walk out onto the battlefield with their children and say to their fathers and husbands, you know, you're going to make us either widows or orphans. So please stop this. And they create a truce and technically there's co-government, but it's really Romulus. Who's the one in charge. One of the, one of the interesting things about this story. So there are several interesting things about this story. The first Roman triumph happens during this story. So, um, of Romulus kind of putting on his victory laurel leaves and walking through the streets of Rome with his slaves, with the booty taken from the neighboring communities, um, which goes throughout the ages. This becomes the template for all the Roman triumphs to follow. But one of the really fascinating things is that the rape of the Sabine women is the origin of a custom that we still hold today, which is that of carrying women, um, newly, newly married brides over the threshold of their new homes. And this actually, this ritual commemorates the rape of the Sabine women who would not go into the homes of the Romans of their own accord. Um, and I think this is probably one of the reasons why during during the um, scene in Secret Revelation of John, where um, the chief ruler rapes Eve, that they say this is the beginning of marital, marital intercourse because it, it reflects this idea of the Sabine women's not being taken, um, not of their own accord. So here we get kind of this myth and we can begin to see kind of how it connects to what's going on in the Eve stories. So the broader picture of this is this story also really becomes the template for how Rome thinks about itself in relationship to the other nations that it's conquered. And we have all kinds of visual imagery. And one of the ways that I, that I, kind of try and visualize this. If, if you were in a room where each nation of the world was represented by, by a female figure who was wearing native dress. So we might have the Statue of Liberty represent us or um, 
a woman dressed in blue jeans and and, and an American flag t-shirt or something. My origins are from the Netherlands, so I always think of the Netherlands or the Dutch. So, you know, a Dutch woman wearing wooden shoes and kind of traditional Dutch garb. And we'd have um, a woman from each nation in her garb kind of representing this. And then and then Rome, either represented by by the emperor or by, you know, a woman in, in military garb, would be standing over all of this. Um, so that you know that all these other women belong to Rome. We actually have a couple friezes from Turkey, from Aphrodisius Turkey, where um, Claudius and Britannia and Nero and Armenia, where it almost looks like like the emperor is in the midst of violating this personified woman. Um, to represent the moment of conquest, which really looks um, like a picture of a rape narrative in many ways. And um, so these stories are not only about the founding of Rome, but about this continuing presence that it has of the way it can violate um, and conquer other countries, just as Romulus and the Romans conquered these women. Um, to make sure that the empire can continue on, whether it's for through women or goods or wealth, but that this power over others and sexual violence are inextricably linked in a lot of both the literature and the visual representations um, of the Roman world. If you were just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with Celine Lilly. She is the director of the Tonho Center, as well as the author of The Rape of Eve, uh, The Transformation of Roman Ideology in Three Early Christian Retellings of Genesis, the story of uh, taking the bride across the threshold. Um, I hadn't heard that, that marriage itself is, is understood, it came to be, as, as an act of, of domination. And I and I think, you know, in the ancient and I shouldn't say only the ancient world, because I think there are all kinds of ways in which this operates today as well. But marriage in so many ways was about property in the ancient world and about alliance and 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 not about love, not about um, these other these other ways in which we think of um, marriage. It's a it's a different way. And it seems shocking think about the ways that these stories are framed. But if we start to look at our own culture and world closely, you know, we see things like rape as an act of war. We see the ways in which um, power and sexuality and um, conquest still really play out um, in inextricable ways. And um, so the the past is still present. Well, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, just think of the uh, the rhetoric of, for example, um, military training involving, you know, pornographic movies, football games. Uh, what's the most popular v- words to use uh, by the announcers? Domination and penetration. I mean, there is yes. this. This is uh, continuous. Uh, it, but I'm and, and so I'm curious now to move to these new texts who as I'm understanding, were real critiques of uh, Roman ideology and Roman power. I think that's the most fascinating thing to me about um, these texts and the most important is that they are really the only texts in the ancient world that I have come across where the woman is not blamed for the sexual violence perpetrated against her. Um, for example, one of the one of another of these kind of early um, Roman stories is uh, that of Lucretia, and um, she is she's married and um, and she's raped by the son of the king who lusts after her, and when her husband and um, when she tells her husband and his friends about this, they vow to avenge her and 
and say, you know, it's not the, it's not the body that sins, but the mind. So like they kind of let her, they do kind of let her off the hook. But Lucretia actually says in this moment, I don't want any woman to be able to justify her actions through my example. So she actually takes a knife and kills herself. And in early Christianity, um, Tertullian, who's one of the early church fathers, actually writes that Lucretia is one of the best examples for Christian women who are sexually violated, um, that they should do as Lucretia did and kill themselves um, rather than um, remain alive kind of with, he doesn't put it quite this way, but, you know, with the stain of their sexual assault. And I think the amazing thing about this text is that while it condemns rape, it doesn't disparage sexuality. Adam and Eve go on to have a sexual relationship, but it's one that's mutual and it's one that's based on love and they have children. So we know that um, they're not practicing asceticism, um, Adam and Eve, you know, they're, they are, they are having sex and they are birthing children, but it's a really different model than what we get from the paradigm created by the rulers and their rape of Eve. Um, but she is not, Eve is not shamed. Um, Adam and Eve go on together to be able to see that the violence that these rulers are perpetrating um, is ghastly. I mean, the text actually says that they loathed, loathed them and could see that they were like beasts. So this is a this is a huge shift from both the textual and visual images given by the Roman Empire as far as um, as far as um, the legitimacy of violation and assault, whether it's entire peoples or individuals is concerned. And um, I think I think the thing is that the thing with these texts, also is that, you know, they can't really envision a world where this isn't possible. They don't see a world without sexual violence. They're really living within the world um, that they see around them. But through the way in which Eve splits into the tree of knowledge, this splitting or dissociation, which we know from contemporary trauma theory, this is something that um, that individuals go through this this dissociation or splitting so that a piece of themselves can in certain ways escape from the violence perpetrated against them that they're exposed to from this trauma. And oftentimes we tend to frame this splitting as a bad thing, but as this text shows too, this is a sign of health. This is a way that individuals can have a piece of themselves that remains beyond the violation. And then through the eating of the tree, as um, the eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, as well as her relationship with Adam and the way that he enters into her healing as well, they're able to kind of be in this together together and move to a new state of being that doesn't ignore or erase the violence that's happened, but allows them to move forward in a different way within it and to resist it. To kind of develop um, what might be called, uh, Dinah Ramey calls a soul value. She's speaking about uh, enslaved Americans who had their bodies valued, but they found within themselves a soul value. I, I was just thinking of that as you're talking about that, that splitting off, finding out one's true self that can't be, you know, uh, identified or abused by others. That I think that's a, I think that's a beautiful way to look at it and a really beautiful connection um, to make that, you know, that there is this, there is this thing inside that really is of value and that as much as the world or powers that be want to try and negate and suppress and stamp it out, 
it has a way to persist. Celine Lilly, my guest on Progressive Spirit, director of the Tanho Center, tanhocenter.org, and author of The Rape of Eve, The Transformation of Roman Ideology in Three Early Christian Retellings of Genesis. You mentioned Tertullian. I, I do want to talk about we, the, the text that we mentioned. We're talking about the secret revelation of John, origin of the world, reality of the rulers, um, the rewriting of the Genesis story, the Midrash, uh, as you put it, of the Genesis story. It is a resistance to Roman ideology, is there also a sense in which it was resistant to what became uh, Orthodox Christianity? I would say probably yes. I think that the values in this text definitely push up against Christianity as it forms into Christianity as we quote-unquote Um, know it. The church has asked all kinds of folks to endure what's given to them instead of asserting their full humanity and being able to live into um, the full human flourishing that I believe is our birthright. I have heard um, more times than I wish from folks about the ways that their pastors have asked them to remain in abusive relationships because divorce is against the church or the ways in which, um, you know, historically um, things like slavery were justified, Um, all the ways in which wars are justified. I mean, there's all kinds of ongoing legacies um, that stem from this period of time. And it's one of the things that I do love about these three retellings, that it lets us know that folks in the ancient world from 2000 years ago, from the time in which the New Testament itself was written, were struggling with these issues and were saying, We do not think that this is the divine plan for humanity. We do not, um, we are not going to justify this violence. We think that it's ghastly and beastly and, and we need to find ways to continue to resist these values that are antithetical to what we have learned through our own spiritual paths, through following the way, through following the teachings of both the Hebrew Bible and of Jesus. Celine Lilly uh, has been my guest. She's the director of the Tanho Center, tanhocenter.org. I do want to ask one more question. We started with the Tanho Center, uh, scholarship, arts, um, these new texts, and the church, kind of an intersection. Can you talk a little bit about the effects that some of these new texts have had on contemporary people? There are a couple ways in which I think these texts have become really important for folks. These texts are inclusive of of women and champion women's leadership, things like the Gospel of Mary, which we didn't have before, which talks about women teaching and preaching. And I think this gives... um, hope and space, not only to women, but I, but for other folks who felt marginalized within the church to have um, these early texts that say there are spaces for all kinds of people in, um, in contemporary Christian religiosity. I think this is one of the most important things um, from these new discoveries. Another thing is that when we look at the diversity that was going on in the early Jesus movements, we can see and encounter and accept and struggle with the diversity that's happening not only in Christianity, but our ever increasingly smaller world. And I think when we can see the ways in which early Jesus followers are struggling with meaning, struggling what it means with what it means to be human, struggling with um, their governments, with the powers that be, with what it means to be spiritual, with what it means to be um, in material bodies, what it means to be subject to violence and oppression and subjugation. When we look at these struggles and see the different ways in which communities come together, I think that 
that broad template gives us ways to think about how we are with one another today, with the ways in which we can be community, and that these texts really create a space for struggle and confusion and um, and flexibility in certain ways, which I think so many folks are looking for. Celine Lilly has been my guest on Progressive Spirit, uh, the Tanho Center. Uh, check that out, www.tanho, T-A-N-H-O, center.org, and her book, The Rape of Eve, The Transformation of Roman Ideology in Three Early Christian Retellings of Genesis. This is fascinating. Thank you for being with me today and for this work. John, thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station or college station or community station or even commercial station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and the Pacifica Radio Network. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on podcast. Hear it on your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear and listen on iTunes or Stitcher or any app that has a place for a review, please leave one. More reviews help the show get a wider audience. If you have ideas for guests or would like to comment on an episode, contact me through my website, progressivespirit.net, progressivespirit.net. You can comment on Facebook and retweet on Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schott. Be well. Be well.